this morning we are starting chapter 3 of Revelation. Uh, this letter is to the letter at Sardis, and it's where we're going to see Jesus says to this church that they're dead. They look good, but they're really dead. Uh, Tom Rainer, several years ago, he wrote this book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's a really good book, short, it's a good read. Um, and um, Rainer identifies uh, uh, several fatal causes that um, would put a once alive, once thriving, vibrant church into the grave. Uh, so here's some of, here's some of the causes. Uh, he writes this. He says, well, first off, that no church dies overnight. It's usually this slow erosion, this slow fade that leads to their death. Um, I think the same thing is true when we think about like... Um, like with the marriage and divorce, usually the divorce just didn't happen overnight. It was, it was a gradual fade towards that. And so Rainer would argue that churches die, it's a, usually a slow fade. And so he lists several reasons why churches um, die. Um, first, he, he mentions that it's, it's the past is the hero. That, you know, those were the glory days back in the past and their head is still back there. Those were the great days and they're just... They're just attempting to get back to those days. So that's one reason a church dies. Uh, another reason is the church refused to look like the community. So maybe back in their glory days, the community looked one way, but as communities change, the church never changed with it. And so the community looks a lot different than the, commun- than, than the church. The church eventually ends up dying because they're not reaching the community around it. Um, another one is that the budget moved inwardly. So they quit giving to missions, they quit, you know, outreach, and they were just focusing on themselves. So all the money was just about themselves. The next one is similar. It's that the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission, that you stop not just giving, but you stop going, that, that you, you quit doing missions, you, you quit reaching out, um, doing service projects, uh, and so the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. Another one is that... Um, the church shifts to a preference-driven church. So now we know we're declining and dying, so let's just go to, like, preference of the world. So, like, how can we get as many people as we can and just start going to the preference and we stop preaching things that might be, like, you know, um, that might not sound so comforting. Um, so you stop mentioning things like sin um, and hell and you just go to preference. Maybe you're just giving away prizes to get people to come, making music just um, to get people in the building. Another one is uh, they, you'll see that the pastoral um, tenure decreases. So pastors don't stay very long. They're only there like two or three years. They, they, they just, um, the church is hard, so they just leave. So that's another sign of a church that's dying. Um, another one, this one is really convicting because all these kind of seem like I don't know, very obvious, and then this one was, should be really obvious as well, but I just missed it, uh, that the church rarely prayed together. So if you want to kill the church, then just don't pray together as a church family. Man, that really hit me, because I think we could do a much better job. I'm thankful there's a group um, that pray every week. You guys get together and pray. Um, um, I don't think this is talking about Sunday mornings. We pray during Sunday morning service, but this is more like somebody's up here interceding on behalf of the congregation. This is, seems like it's talking about more us praying together corporately. 
Another one is that the church had no clear purpose. So you have all these different um, visions, and they're kind of competing against each other, and you end up going nowhere. And then the last one is that the church obsessed over the facilities. So we quit caring about things that are important, like the people, um, and just began to think about the building and all the stuff, and how can we have the, the best and biggest, grandest things, and you lose track of what's really important. So... Rainer um, gives us some good insight for us that we need to keep in our minds as we move forward as a young church. We're about 10 years old, 11 years old. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm guessing churches don't um, plant and start and, and think, well, you know, in 50 years we're going to be we're going to be gone. But if we're not careful in 50 years, we will be gone. Um, the fact that we're meeting in this building serves as a constant reminder that if we don't guard doctrine, that if we um, don't have a missional focus, that one day we, we too are going to be selling this property. Uh, to think that this, the congregation that met in this building before us uh, started in the late 40s, and, and um, they, had, they left great documents. Um, um, they had hundreds of members. Uh, it was thriving at one point. And then somewhere along the way, um, maybe some of these reasons, I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with their situation, but they end up just closing um, their, their doors and selling us the building. When you drive around West Virginia, most of the first Baptist churches that you see in West Virginia have either reached their 100-year um, mark, their centennial, or about to. And many of those churches would say that they've seen their best days. Their best days were several years ago. Uh, when it comes to age of churches... Um, one of the most fascinating churches in West Virginia is Simpson Creek Baptist Church. The church is most famous for producing um, a young lady named Emily Hefner. I don't know how many of you know Emily Hefner. You might know her as Emily Ely. Uh, and so she's from Simpson Creek Baptist Church. Um, they're also known for being the oldest existing Protestant church west of the Allegheny Mountains. It's pretty fascinating. Um, Simpson Creek Baptist Church was founded in 1770. It's, it's amazing, which means, which means that church was organized six years before the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia in 1776. Amazing history of that church. It's still alive today. Still, it's a huge church in Bridgeport, West Virginia. Um, <coughs> our passage today, Christ, he, he, he looks at this church... And he performs an examination of this church in Sardis. His diagnosis was deadness, that this church was dead. Decay had begun to set in, but the situation was not past the hope where Christ could step in. Time was running out on this congregation. And even though this church had a, um, a better past than future, this church was not beyond a cure. Uh, some would argue that um, every church should die. It's part of a natural bell curve. Churches start, they have their peak, and at some point they die. Uh, they would say, like, since the church is a living organism, every living thing dies, then the church has a natural life cycle, and at some point every church will die. I, I understand that logic. Um, I understand that every seven, you know, all the seven churches we're reading about in Revelation, they're all dead. Um, all the 
churches in the New Testament that we, you know, like Corinthians and Galatians and all those, all those um, are dead as well. Um, in that sense, like from first century, um, you know, things have grown. You know, there's still uh, a presence um, in today in Rome and um, other places um, from New Testament. But the main point from this morning's passage is, is that Jesus, he comes to this church and he identifies, he's the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, and he calls the church in Sardis to wake up, to strengthen what remained. So let's read our passage together, starting um, chapter 3, verse 1, as we look at an autopsy of a deceased church. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, um, I pray that um, we who have an ear would hear uh, from your Spirit this morning. Uh, that we'd put all distractions aside. That we would just lean in this morning to what you could be saying to us. That maybe we come in this morning with this facade that we're fake, that we look good from the outside, but deep down we've got some major problems. So Lord, I pray that we would wake up today, that we would hear from you, and I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, verse 1 starts out like most of these other letters have started with this introduction. We see in verse 1 that this church is located in Sardis. Uh, it says this in verse 1, To the angel uh, of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Uh, if you remember Sardis, uh, all these letters are written to these churches who are in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. So this is where you'd find Sardis. It's a fascinating city. The way it was placed um, had, these, um, had these three huge cliffs that um, pretty much made them invincible from the enemies. There's just one way in, one way out. Um, sadly, though, it seemed like the church had a very similar view of their congregation, that it was invincible. Uh, and Sardis was also known for having this huge cemetery. Because of the unique terrain um, found in Sardis, this the city's cemetery was known as the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills. Uh, 
And, and Jesus uses that backdrop to speak hard truth into their lives. So Jesus comes to them, and he tells them that they're dead. But then he says, at the same time, to wake up. Seems kind of crazy. Go to a dead person and say, wake up. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Um, it seems like everyone else in the community would praise the church. From the outside looking in, it looked like a pretty good church. Maybe today's comparison, it'd be a church that has you know, a high attendance, had a healthy budget, a bunch of programs for its people, a cool facility, large staff. That's usually what we mean when we say a church looks alive. But looks can be deceiving. In reality, this church in Sardis was dead. But death doesn't stop Jesus. Just because something's dead doesn't mean it's time for Jesus to give up and move on. Jesus loves when the deck is stacked against him. So this is a perfect time for Jesus to step in to this situation. God has raised other dead things. So this is just another opportunity for him to show off his power. Now, we don't really know why this church died. Um, from the context of this passage, it, it's, it seems like the best thing that we can come up with is that the Christians in Sardis would not publicly confess Christ. Maybe they were ashamed. Maybe they were afraid of being ostracized, as we'll see in a little bit. Um, and so maybe that's why in verse 5, uh, Jesus is he's so adamant about confessing the remaining believers to his Father. Now, we see in verse 1 where Christ reminds us that he sees all of our works. So Jesus announces himself to the church in verse 1 as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you remember back in chapter 1, the seven stars were identified as the seven angels of these churches. Um, as the one of the seven spirits and the seven stars, nothing escapes his sight. He, he calls all his people to wake up, to be strong. And because Jesus, he's privileged to all knowledge, all information. Uh, he sees everything that happens. He sees past this facade of this church. Uh, the, he sees past the fakeness um, that's in this church. And the same is true for us today. He sees past our church's fakeness, its facade. So if you walk in this morning with... You're just this hypocrisy, or you're just fake or phony. You can trick us probably for a long time, but you cannot fool Christ. Jesus says to them, I know your works. What he means he, is that he knows their good works, their bad works, and as we see in this passage, their incomplete works. And he says to them, you have this reputation of being alive, um, so this was probably a well-known church in Sardis. People knew about this church. Um, but if you notice, even with all that, Jesus doesn't really say anything praiseworthy about this church. The other churches, he's mentioned some things. This church, he does not. It's like Jesus is going, you've been praised by everyone else so much. There's no need for me to just boast about how great you are. You already hear how great you are. Let me tell you some other things. And so Jesus is not fooled by their, their outward appearance. They look good from the outside, 
But Jesus says, you guys are dead. And then in verse 2, he confronts them. And at the same time, he offers hope for this church's future. Look down at verse 2. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. How kind is the Lord to step into this situation? They were dead. He could have just left them to rot, but he loves them so much. He steps into their mess, and he offers a remedy. I, I love how Christ loves. He, he loves when the odds are against him, and he, he steps into this situation. Others might look at that church and just go, man, I'm going to write them off. There's no hope for them at all. But Jesus He's willing, again and again, he continues to rescue his people. As long as Christ is involved, your condition is never truly terminal. So Jesus gives this church at Sardis five imperatives or commands or steps to move from death to life. The first command is to wake up. They had fallen asleep. And I love this imagery here. When you fall asleep, you're present You're there in the room, but you don't know really what's going on around you. You're asleep. Um, That's the picture of this church in Sardis, that they're asleep. Life's going on around you, but you don't have a clue what's going on. I I remember uh, in high school, I'd stay the night with my friends. uh, I would make sure, like, I would never be the first one to sleep. You never, when you're hanging out with your, and this is high school guys, you never want to be the first one to sleep. I see some, some nods from some of the guys in the room like, yeah, like that's the worst thing ever. Because you just don't trust your friends, right? They're your friends, but you don't trust them. Uh, might just say something about our friend, who our friends are. But you never want to be the first one to sleep because they might do something to you. Here Christ says, wake up. This church was asleep. Christ is telling them to stay alert. When you're asleep, you have no defense. To wake up means to recognize that Jesus is bigger than anything you fear. Um, It means recognizing that he is better than anything that pleases you. It means knowing that if you have him, then then you have everything that you could possibly ever need. And you find that in Christ. That's what it means to wake up. We're we're awake to other things. We think these things will satisfy us. Christ says, wake up. Focus on me. I'm what's going to satisfy you. Next, he says, to strengthen what remains because it's about to die. The culture in Sardis didn't oppose them. Some of these other letters we've read, there's persecution going on. But it seems like this church, it's, it's fine. There's, it's, there's, there's not much rub between the church and the community. It's, it's like they're just maybe compromising some of their beliefs just to... to Um, go along to get along in a sense it seemed like the culture just ignored them like yeah we know about that church the good works they do but they they don't bother us we don't bother them Uh, this verse reminds me of so many churches in West Virginia and I pray that's not um, the case for us as Huntington Community Church Um, that that the culture just it kind of ignores us like we're here we don't bother them they don't bother us 
Um, I just, just think of so many churches in West Virginia, and that's kind of where, where, where there are. Um, their better days was like in the 40s and 50s, 60s. That was the heyday. You walk through many of the churches, and you see like, you see um, the wall of, uh, of pictures of the pastors hanging. You've seen maybe those churches, and, and, and the church is like declining, and everybody looks back to like, oh, I remember when pastor so-and-so, and it was like in the 40s, 50s, 60s. That's when the church was, that was in the heyday. But then like the 70s came around. Well, the 70s were hard decade. That was like the hippie movement. Um, you, had, you had Vietnam, and a lot of people left the church. Well, people thought, well, they'll come back. And you have the 80s. The 80s just strange, uh, strange decade. Uh, like, well, you know, we'll get through the 80s, 90s come, 90s go, 2000s come, and now a lot of those churches that were thriving, they, they look just like a museum. Um, you know, they, they, could charge, they could charge admission to elementary schools. You know, come back and see how it used to be, the good old days. Uh, and Jesus says, you need to strengthen what remains. You need to fortify yourself. You're not as strong. You're not as healthy as you think. The third command here we see in this passage is to remember what you have received and heard. They need to continually recall the truth of the gospel that they had received and heard. Oftentimes they be, um, when churches begin to die, they begin like to get inner focus and they forget about the gospel. Uh, and here um, we see this reminder that you need to remember the gospel again and again, daily, over and over. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us through the cross, through his resurrection. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He experienced the wrath of God that we, um, it should have been ours. He he paid the penalty for our sin that should have been, um, that we should have paid. He gave us the gift, the eternal life that we do not deserve. That's what we have to remember. Uh, The fourth command is to keep it. With the command to keep it, Jesus encourages the church to hold on, to guard what they had received and heard. Um, When you think about it, we never drift towards anything good. We, we, We never drift into truth, but we so easily slide away from it. Uh, We drift into theological liberalism. We drift into moral compromise. Um, I've never seen a, a church drift into conservative theology. It's always away from Scripture. Christ tells us to stand firm, to hold on, to guard it, to never let go. Remain with what you've received and heard. Then the last command we see here is to repent. Uh, the command to repent has been in four of the five churches that we've um, studied so far. Uh, it, it's, it's something that we continue to do, repent. Uh, oftentimes we think of repentance as just the, something you do um, to start your faith. It's not. That's, it is how you become a Christian. You repent of your sin, trust in Christ. But it's something you continue to do every day. Anytime you sin, you repent. Repentance is a change of the mind or action, attitude. We never grow out of a need of repentance. 
Then Jesus gives them this warning that if they don't repent and wake up, um, he, look at this. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. This church was in danger of getting this unexpected visit from Jesus, the kind you don't want to get. Um, maybe maybe um, you get your first apartment, your house, and um, then you just, like, when your parent shows up at the door, just mad at you can just tell by looking at him, you're like, oh, what did I do wrong? That's what Jesus is talking about here. This imagery of Jesus coming like a thief is found several times in Revelation. It's found in the Gospels. He will come like a thief, meaning unexpected, um, uninvited. And he will come, and they will not know at what hour. There will be no anticipation, no time for preparing for his coming. They must respond now, because if they don't, Jesus says in verse 3, I will come against you. I cannot think of a more uh, frightening thought than thinking that Jesus is coming against me. I mean, you're talking about the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's conquered sin, death, hell, one who's created everything with his, with his voice, and now he's coming against you. There's nowhere to hide. His coming against you because of our lack of confession, that we won't confess him in front of others, his coming against you is way worse than whatever consequence that you're trying to avoid by not confessing him. You know, like at work, maybe people are talking about Jesus and church and faith, and you're just, maybe you just, oh, I'm afraid to say anything because they're going to exclude me, or I may not get a promotion, or could get fired. Whatever you're afraid of, I promise you, seeing Jesus on that day is going to be far worse than facing anything that they can bring against you. What's keeping you from confessing, from being bold about the name of Jesus today? What's holding you back? The good news for us is in verse 4, not all hope is lost. Um, verse 4 says, yet you, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 4 shows us oh, what's going on behind the scenes. That Christ says that there's still a few believers here in this church who have not soiled their garments. Now, garments, it was a way in, in Scripture to talk about like, how clean you were. So here's this picture of spiritual contamination of their Christian witness. They were participating in um, trends of their culture. Sardis, the city, had a reputation for bad character. And it seemed, like, it, it seemed that despite their good image, the church had made some compromises. Um, maybe they were just like not speaking about Jesus. Um, when people were asking, maybe they were like, not telling all the truth of what they believed about Jesus, but there was this small minority who stood up for Jesus. Uh, they were unashamed of the gospel. They were not afraid to confess Christ, and their lives were not full of compromises. 
They swam against the culture of their day. That's what it meant for them to walk in purity of white clothing provided by Christ. The, the white garment, it's, it's mentioned several times in, in Revelation. Um, here in a few weeks, we'll see this. In Revelation 7, um, verse 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this future heavenly scene, which contains saints from every nation throughout all human history, here they are, they're clothed in these white robes. And among the saints in Revelation 7 would have been true believers from this congregation, the church in Sardis. Christ keeps his promises. There's a remnant that remains, and we continue to read about this remnant in verses 5 and 6. Christ says this. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Amazing truth for us. There's some promises that are made here. Notice that this letter does not contain a rebuke about sexual morality, idolatry, like some of the other letters. It doesn't mention any reference to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans or, the, or, or even like Jezebel. There's none of that here. It doesn't seem like this church has like these great sins. But Jesus says they were dead. Verse 5 might give us some insight to this, of why they were dead. Um, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the Jews, during this time, they were scattered all around. They were all under Roman rule. But they were allowed to worship their Jewish God. Others were not. Others had to worship the gods of Rome. But Rome... Like, they just looked at the Jews. You guys are a special group of people. We're just going to let you worship your God. You just do what you guys want to do. It seems like knowing that, and then also knowing that um, from archaeology, that, that we see that in Sardis, there was a thriving Jewish community. The largest synagogue from ancient world was located in Sardis. It was large enough to seat over 1,000 people. So there's a huge Jewish population. There's a possibility that maybe that church, they, they were trying to identify with the Jews. As long as they identified with the Jews, then they were safe. They didn't have to worship the Roman gods. And so maybe they were trying to be, just be quiet, just hush, hush, let's go about our business, and not confess Christ, because if we confess Christ, then the Jews would blood out our name. And so studying this, you, you'll see that in Sardis, that in the synagogue, that if, if you were um, a Christian, you confess Christ, then in their synagogue, they would literally blot out your name. They would mark it off from that city, which would mean that you would then have to worship the gods of Rome. 
So here's this situation, and maybe the Christians, they, they didn't want to openly confess Christ because they were afraid of having their names blot out in the synagogue's registry. This would explain a lot. This would explain why maybe Jesus is making this promise to them that if they confess his name, then he will be faithful to confess their name to his father. So Jesus lists three promises. So let's walk through these three. First, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. This is a sweet deal for us. That you were called a conqueror, and we haven't conquered anything. We're, we're a conqueror because of the one um, who, who conquered death and sin. He's the one who's helping us to persevere to the end. And once you reach the end of life, then you are glorified. That's what it means to be clothed in white. And you're glorified. You're perfected. The second promise is Jesus will never blot your name out of the book of life. So for the Christians in Sardis, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you may have been in risk of the Jewish synagogue blotting out your name, but your name is solidified in Christ's book. Jesus talks about the book of life in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples that they need to find their value in the book of life, not in other things. And Luke 10 verse 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So in the context, um, people have... Um, they're demon possessed and, and the, the disciples are casting out demons and they're like look what, look what we're doing this is amazing and Jesus is saying don't be amazed by that you need to be amazed and in awe that your name is written in the book of life that's what you need to be amazed by uh, the last promise from Christ is that he will confess your name before his father and before his angels he will acknowledge your name as evidence that he knows you and claims you as his own. Essentially, Jesus is saying, since you are not ashamed of me, then I am not ashamed of you. I want, I want you just to meditate on that for a moment. Let that set in that Christ knows your name. You're not everyone... Not everyone in this room can name, can name everyone. I, I, I can't name everyone in this room. There's guests here this morning. There's mask. You might be here for 10 years. I, the mask might. I see some guests. Isaac, Alyssa are with us this morning. Good to see you guys back. Um, but we can't name everyone just in this room. Here Christ can name every single one of his people. He knows them by name. That's amazing. The promise that your names are permanently written in the book of life is a promise that should move you, should motivate you, compel you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. That you're in awe that the creator of the universe knows me. That should get me up out of bed in the mornings, even the mornings that's hard to get out of bed, I don't want to get out of bed. To be known by Christ 
should motivate us to love and good deeds. There are many reasons uh, why churches die. You know, I would look at this church. I think we have a healthy church. Uh, we're uh, full of young people. Um, we continue to bring in new members, either by addition or through birth. Uh, we're baptizing people. But I'm, 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 I'm not, um, not going to think that this church can't see bad days ahead. Uh, we've got to be on guard. We've got to look out to make sure that we don't end up being like the church at Sardis. Also know that a, a healthy church is made up of healthy individuals. That, that each one of you, you bring your good and your bad to this congregation. Uh, and so a healthy church is made up of healthy individuals. Do you have an appearance of health? You do you look good while in, re in reality you're dead? Is your life a facade? Are you a fake, a phony? You can trick us for a good while, but you cannot pull a fast one on the Lord. He sees it all. What area of your life this morning, if Christ were writing a letter to you, would he say, wake up? You've got these blinders. You can't see these areas in your life. You're fake. It's a facade. You've got this good reputation. So many people talk about you and praise your name. But you need to wake up. The hope for us this morning is the same hope that Jesus offered this church in Sardis. We must remember to, to keep, cling to what we have received and heard. If you've heard the good news that there is a God who is holy and that you are sinful and you are under his judgment, but this holy God has made provision for your sin in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then remember that good news. Cling to it. Live on it. Keep it. Repent of those, of those things that, that create the separation between you and Christ. Live a life of repentance. Things that don't match up with Scripture. Let us confess our allegiance to Christ, to everyone. May we be bold this week so that Jesus will one day confess our name to his Father. I'm going to invite the band to come back up this morning. We're going to keep singing. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for second chances. Now, Lord, some of us this, this morning, we... We may be, may be asleep. We need to wake up. So, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would stir us from our slumber. Lord, help us to see those spots in our lives that we're blind to, that we just can't see. Help us to repent of our sin, to trust in you. Lord, I pray that our church would be a healthy congregation, not just from the outside, but also from within.
Lord, we look forward to the day where you confess our name to your Father. You call us by name. You look to your Father and you say, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's my, that's my servant. Well done. So Lord, we look forward to that day. Help us to cling to you. Help us to finish the race. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.